Hey, Justin. Yes, David. I've come up with a way to save the TV industry. And what is that? A podcast all about TV shows and the people that make them happen. Good. When are we going to start it? Ten seconds ago. This is TV Show and Tell. Welcome to TV Show and Tell, the podcast that goes the extra mile to bring you all the latest goings-on in the TV business. I'm David Bodicum. I'm a TV producer and games consultant from London. And I'm Justin Scroggy, known internationally as The Format Doctor. And our special guest today is Phil Gurin, who, amongst other things, was responsible for importing Anne Robinson and The Weakest Link on an unwary American public. We'll also be talking about whether it matters if a show is broken and discussing the tricky matter of looking after contributors. But first, it's the news. And at the news desk, Justin Scroggy. <laughs> Thanks, Bob. OK, so what I've got today is uh, all to do with food, actually all to do with cooking, various bits of news. So you remember that there was a series called Rat in the Kitchen? Oh, yes which was kind of the mole meets a cooking show, cooking competition. So it was chefs and home cooks who were competing in the kitchen, but there was also a rat, a mole in the kitchen who was trying to sabotage their efforts mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. Anyway, this launched with great hullabaloo on TBS, um, but it's been cancelled after one season, which is a bit of a surprise, really. But apparently it's more to do with the whole Warner Brothers Discovery consolidation thing. Ah, Right. Because Warner Brothers Discovery have, have now owned scripts, and part of the scripts catalogue is the Food Network and the Cooking Channel. And I think what I understand is they've decided that that's where, they're gonna, that's where their food's going to be, and those channels do cooking at a much, much lower price point. So is that the name of a company, or is that the name of a department? Scripps is a the Scripps network is basically a a distributor. It's a it's a big catalogue of lifestyle programs and and all sorts of other, uh, unscripted shows. Right. Um. And basically, because Warner Brothers have bought Scripps, the whole catalogue. Um. And in that catalogue, the the portfolio of that catalogue includes the Food Network and the cooking channel contents. Right. It means they've got access to cooking shows, sort of a whole range of cooking shows for WBD, and also that they get those those cooking shows are made at a much lower price. Now there was a the I wrote down a, a quote from Warner Brothers Discovery who said, um, given that they've got the Food Network and Cooking Channel, quote, it doesn't really make sense to spread the peanut butter so thin from a content perspective. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, thanks for that. So my second food bit of news is a new show from Gordon Ramsay, or from his company, um, along with Fox Alternative Entertainment, and it's called Kitchen Commando. <laughs> so it's an original unscripted cooking series, um, but basically it is, uh, Gordon. This in this instance, Gordon's alter ego uh, is a guy called Andre Rush, now, he's a ex-U.S. Army Master Sergeant and also a White House chef. And like Gordon, he attempts to save struggling restaurants by going in there along Kitchen Nightmares style and sorting it all out. However, 
the whole um, tone of the show is because he's a massive, big army master sergeant. He's wearing a chef's jacket that's crossed with army fatigues, uh-huh. uh, which barely contain his biceps, frankly, which are apparently 24 inches, his biceps. He basically takes uh, Gordon Ramsay's kind of parade ground ranting to a new level. There's a lot of press-ups and that kind of thing and a lot of shouting in your face. Uh, so it's it's the show that we know, but with a with a new star at the heart of it. If you if you go onto the websites where they list like all the previous episodes of these restaurant rescue programs, especially the Gordon Ramsay ones, frankly, about a third of them go to the wall, despite mm-hmm. all of the advice, makeover, chef, you know, uh, staff changes, and all that sort oh. of thing. It, it, it is oh. actually quite sad how. A lot of them just slide back into their old old ways when the cameras have turned off. The truth is that, like, one, I mean, about nine out of ten restaurants fail after the first year anyway. I mean, it's a it's a really, really cutthroat, very, very difficult business, you know, once you've launched it to hold the ground. So I'm, I'm not very surprised, actually. Quick reference to a show called Pamela's Cooking with Love. This sounds fabulous already. <laughs> exactly. So this involves... Um, Baywatch is Pamela Anderson. Oh, my word. Who is a long-time vegan and animal rights activist, and she's basically bringing her veganism to the screen. Um, She's going to be cooking at home for her family and friends, but obviously all plant-based meals. Oh. Which is quite sweet and is not at all weird compared to the next one, which is called Delvey's Dinner Club. Now, I don't know if you remember um, Inventing Anna, did you ever watch that on Netflix? Uh, yeah, is that about the person who faked a whole... Um... Yeah, she was a fake heiress, basically. Um, so uh, Inventing Anna was a drama based on the documentary about what she did. It was called Anna Sorokin. And she basically spent several years masquerading as an heir to a $67 million trust fund. And in the process, she stole about $200,000 from banks and hotels and restaurants and and individual people as well. So she's now out of prison. Um, However, she's still under house arrest. So she is going to be hosting dinner parties at home uh, with her ankle tag clanking (laughs) under the table. (laughs) Um, Hopefully inviting all these famous celebs um, to have unscripted conversation, unfiltered, unscripted conversation around the dinner table. So it seems as if crime does pay. It's a good way of getting out of uh, dinner parties that you don't really want to go to. You sort of go, there. well, unfortunately, it's a save the day that they ring in to check that I'm I'm still doing my community service or something. <laughs> yeah, well, it wouldn't really work with Come Die With Me when uh, when one of your party can't actually leave the house. Yeah. Anyway, those are my uh, those are my four uh, four food related uh, cooking shows. So um, you had something, I think, David. Uh, well, I just have very one quick mention of something non food related. Uh, Rising star in Sri Lanka has finished. Uh-huh. Uh huh. What's what's remarkable about that? You might say. Well, the fact that like it's remarkable that it started. <laughs> the fact that somebody's actually made a whole series of Rising Star. Uh, but the other thing is that it is completed after a total of 469 days. Wow. Yes. That is remarkable. And it's, I think it's how long Anna Soroki was in prison. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Our special guest today is Phil Gurin, who has worked as a writer and producer across a vast range of entertainment subgenres, including stunt shows, beauty pageants, quizzes, challenge formats, game shows, hidden camera shows, business formats, and award shows. Some of the shows he's had a hand in include The Weakest Link US, Shark Tank, Osit, Fridge Wars, and The Singing Bee. Let's hear from him now. Our guest today is Phil Gurin, who is joining us from L.A. Phil is a producer, executive producer and writer of TV shows across multiple unscripted genres. He's won four primetime Emmys for Shark Tank and as well as adapting formats such as Dragon's Den and The Weakest Link for the U.S. market, he's created his own formats, including Cooking Caper, Fridge Wars and comedy game show Oh Sit, if you careful how I say that, for which he won a rose door. Phil is also co-chair of Frapper and has just launched his own distribution company. So welcome, Phil. Hi, hi guys. How are you doing? Hey, just to kick off, I wanted to ask you what your big break into television was. I know that you came from New York originally. So what was your what was your big break as a producer? I'm from New York. And I grew up there. And when I was getting my graduate degree at NYU, got an internship for a TV movie company. I thought I was going to be in the movie business. <laughs> And so I was a writer, a screenwriter. Writing is something I still bring to every show I do. My first job went from an internship into working on a TV movie for CBS a long, long time ago. It was called The Royal Romance of Charles and Diana. (laughs) A TV movie for CBS had won its time period because I'm such an Anglophile and I had lived in London for a bit. They all said, oh, why don't you get involved with this? So I did. And we developed this film, Catherine Oxenberg, who later on went to be famous for being in Dynasty. She Hello. played Diana. We had Olivia de Havilland from Gone with the Wind. Wow. She played the Queen Mother. And I, <laughs> so I'm so I'm one degree separated from Gone with the Wind. <laughs> and so I started my career doing TV movies and working in that business. But one year I needed a job. And somebody said to me, MTV was launching a game show and they needed some comedy writers with a mind for trivia. So my first real game show was a show called Remote Control, which was on MTV. And I was one of the comedy writers there. Some other famous people who were not famous at the time came out of Remote Control. People you may never have heard of, like Adam Sandler and Ben Stiller, (laughs) just to name a couple. They were all there. We were all kids. I wanted to talk a little bit about the process of adapting um, shows from other countries into the U.S. because I know the the U.S. audience is is quite a specific one, really, and that's of a lot of interest to our listeners. You brought Shark Tank across. Tell us a little bit about Dragons Den and Shark Tank and Dragons Den was originally a Japanese format from Nippon TV. I remember seeing a pilot of Dragons Den from Nippon. My friend Paul Gilbert, a legend in the international television business, he at the time was working at Sony. He wanted to try to see if anybody in the U.S. would be interested in Dragon's Den. And so he attached a producer. That was me. And we tried selling Dragon's Den for years in the U.S. We pitched it everywhere. We pitched it to ABC. Then they passed. We pitched it. As a daytime show, we pitched to Discover. We did all kinds of things, and we couldn't get any interest. There was a moment in time where other shows were happening like it, 
they were failures. And then one day, a gentleman named Mark Burnett, you may have heard of him. He's had a little success in the business, um, approached Sony and said he wanted to get involved. So Mark changed the name to Shark Tank. Hence, it was sold. But it's the same show we were developing. And um, it went on to great success. But it's a Japanese show first, even though I know it's a big deal in the UK. I know my friends in Canada still call it Dragon's Den. They do it up there, too. But thankfully, Shark Tank has been on the air. It's been a success. Um, it's one of those great reality formats that is co-viewing. I hear from kids who love it. I hear from parents who love it. You know, in the U.S., it also has a giant giant following on cable, where the reruns are, I think, on CNBC. And so it's on almost every day here. Wow. And I know students study it, and kids love it, and everybody learns something from it. So it's one of those great reality shows. I'm blessed to be a part of it. And I always say it wouldn't be in the U.S., First of all, it wouldn't be in the U.S. without Paul Gilbert, but it wouldn't be in the U.S. without me schlepping it around everywhere. <laughs> Another show that you you were involved with was The Weakest Link. Weakest Link is a British show hosted by Anne Robinson. Everything about it felt sort of infinitely British, and yet it's you know it's flown around the world. But tell us about the how the American version came about. You know, this was early days in this renaissance of reality television. NBC was looking to find its big game show format to follow up on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. This is, we're going back a few weeks. <laughs> and with that, NBC, with a, a legendary television executive named Fred Silverman, Fred and I tried to launch, we, we brought a revival back in 21, which was the quiz show scandal game show. Oh, yeah. We did a big primetime season out of it. It was doing well, but we gave away too much money. So NBC said, eh, we'll cancel that. Let's find another one. So we found Weakest Link. Some agents at the William Morris Agency back then brought it to their attention. We imported it into the U.S. I remember going to London, where I met Ann Robinson, who love and adore Ann Robinson. Such a consummate professional, sharp, funny as hell. And so we studied with the BBC team. We saw how they made the show. I literally was taking production cards from the back room in the video village. This is the cards that they use, and this is all the little paperwork that they had. And we replicated the show, and we brought in, and we did everything we could to make the show look exactly like the British show, so we had a larger audience, right? We, we, we had a bigger studio audience. But it was back in the day when, if you remember, every country who licensed Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, it had to look and sound and smell exactly the same. Yeah. And BBC was doing the same with Weakest Link, and so we did, and we did civilian episodes. It was a very big hit. It was so exciting to see the billboards all around the, the country. It was a very interesting and entertaining ad campaign that NBC launched. It was like the British are invading America with a game show. It was almost like World War II real footage. And it was a big deal. It was a big hit. We did a lot of mostly civilian episodes, but then we got into the habit of starting to do the celebrity, celebrity episodes. I think that's a good thing, but it also sometimes with a jump the shark moment, once you have celebrities, it's hard to go back to civilians. But we did it for 80 primetime hours, and then we did like 400 episodes in daytime with a local American host. When you were translating it from UK to the US, was there not any pressure from the US executives to say, we get it successful, but this is America, and in America we do things bit bigger and better, and so therefore here are some changes we would like to make? No, not one. Really? Not a one. You know, our sense of humor, our, our senses of humor are close. You know, when I was in Ann's Theater, we would talk to, we'd have fun making fun of people. It was always a good fun. But there was no note ever to change it. I don't recall anything. 
Did we change the graphic? We may have changed the logo a little for a little more three-dimensionality, prime time the logo, but we use the same set design, we use the same music, we use the same structure, we use the same scoring mechanism, and we just Americanized the content, right? We were not going to ask about soccer, we were going to ask about American football. Was there ever any question that somebody other than Anne was going to present it? I mean, was she always a given? That... She was a given from the time. Right. She was a given for prime time. For the prime time on NBC, she was the reason to do it. It was her personality married to the game show because they developed it with her at BBC. I mean, it was something that was organic, from what I understand, in BBC development with Anne at all times. When we went to the daytime version, which was a lower budget, no audience, we found it American. Um, we had in George Gray, who is the voice on Prices Right now, and George did it. But that, that was because it was a different day part for a different price point. There was never any doubt Anne was going to do it. And she was a delight to work with. It was just one of the highlights of my life working with Anne Robinson. So you're in this unique position because, as you say, you're an Anglophile. How would you characterize the, the difference between an American viewer and a, and a British viewer? That's a really excellent question, and I wish I had thought of an answer. <laughs> to be honest, there's, they're a lot more similar than you think. Well, good. I think I really don't think there's that much of a difference these days. If I think of the shows that work in the UK and the shows that work in the U.S., Pretty similar. I think maybe a British audience probably enjoys a quiz, or I should strike that and say British commissioners think British audiences like a quiz more than American commissioners seem to like. American commissioners are reticent on, on quiz. I read all the time in the trades, and I see all the time just watching what gets produced in, you know, in the UK. They're trying quiz shows all the time. Right. And I would also say there was an evolution over the last two decades, you know, as an American. I would say, and I've done Shiny Floor, and I love entertainment. I love music. I love dance. I love to do all those kinds of shows. We were, in this generation, late to the party, even though we were, as a culture, we had big Shiny Floor entertainment shows for the dawn of American television. They probably fell out of favor in the 90s. And so when this wave of entertainment formats started to crest again, let's say, late 90s and the 2000s, American commissioners were sucker for an accent. So we had all these Brits come over to America to start working on all of our shiny floor shows. Okay. Now there's a generation of Americans who reinvigorated the muscle, if you will, of knowing how to produce entertainment shows. There may be a perception that culturally, in Britain, a certain generation fondly recalled more music hall, and that kind of entertainment show was more popular in the UK than here. But if you think about dating shows, physical comedy shows and stud shows and prank shows. There's very similar sense of humor is a little different, right? Brits and British and American viewers have a slightly different sense of humor, but we do laugh a lot at the same stuff too. The most famous example of maybe that there is a difference is maybe the comedy panel games, things like Have I Got News View and Will I Lie to You and Taskmaster. And when they've uh, brought over to the US, they've generally bombed. I mean, whose line is the rare exception to that rule? Hmm. But I, you know what? You're 100% right, and I wish you were 100% raw, because I love a good comedy panel show, and I've spent the better part of two decades pitching them. <laughs> no one wants to buy them, you know? Um, and I think it's a great thing, but again, maybe that's cultural there. I once brought Ant and Duck to the United States. We took a German format called Met and Das. Oh, um, yeah, we know that well. We did one season on ABC, as counter-programming to the Summer Olympics. Well, that was really not a good idea because the Summer Olympics get a decent number here. They were also wonderful to work with, and they were great, and the show was fun, and it just was one season and out. 
But I bring them up because when I was a kid, Saturday night in the U.S. was the number one night of television. In my lifetime now, Saturday night is the least watched night of television. It is it is a graveyard in America where I know in the U.K. it's still a big deal. Yeah. In America, it's an afterthought. Yeah. We train the audience that way. We train the audience not to care for Saturday nights in America. It has to do with the movies and the movie business. They wanted you to get out of the house and go to the movies. <laughs> I wanted to talk about some of the shows that you've created now there, there's a terminology thing here because i i have this with my my business partner michelle who, who you know well phil because he talks about me as a writer and for a long time i was confused by that because yes I, I write stuff what he means is that i'm a creator so i think when you're described as as a as a writer well that means that you're a you create formats as well i do both i will create a show, but I also write the host copy. I'll write the narrative. I'll write the actual scripts. I mean, I've done that my entire career. So it's a combination of creating IP, creating formats, and writing the scripts. Which is great, because when you are creating a show, if you've also written host scripts and, you know, you know all those bits that you've got to fill in and all that signposting that you've got to do and all that kind of traffic police that you've got to be, and you know the rhythm of that, and that can also can be tremendously helpful in creating shows that stand up and have a structure that works. I wanted to touch on Fridge Wars. We have a personal connection to that because I was the flag producer for that show of yours in Mongolia. And you did a great job. Thank you very oh, much. Bless you. Thank, thank you for that, Phil. It's one of those ideas that people sort of say, you know, why hadn't that been done before? Just tell us what, what the idea was and then also how, how it came about, really. Well, the idea behind Fridge Wars is everybody anywhere has to, at the end of a workday, go home and make the decision, what am I going to make for dinner? I mean, that's a universal. And many oftentimes people have leftovers they don't know what to do with. So we thought, let's create a show that's a universal need that everybody can relate to. You come home from work, assume you have a family or whatever your definition of a family is. You have roommates, you have friends, you have whatever. You open the refrigerator, or what am I going to make for dinner? And maybe there's new things in there, maybe there's leftovers. And we thought, that's fun. That's a universal. I always like to come up with a show that answers the big why. Is this a question that ordinary people every day would want to know the answer to, right? That's the philosophical question behind any show. I think that's any good. Are we answering a question that anybody gives a shit about? Then, And if we're not, then we're creating a show that doesn't mean anything, in my opinion. Always, what's the why of any show? And if we think it's universal, we develop a show. So Fridge Wars, we had the title first. We, we, we did an exercise and we just wrote titles down on a wall. And we wrote a hundred titles one day in a development session that we were doing with the CBC. And then we, you know, over a couple of days, we kind of narrowed it down. We said, oh, that one still stands out. What's Fridge Wars? And then we figured out the show based on the title and working collaboratively with the team, my team of creatives and the CBC had a whole team. And we, we workshopped an idea until we were ready to, to make it, and it launched in Canada on the CBC in primetime. It's also now going into season two of In Germany on Satites. Okay. We're very excited about that, and we are now kind of rolling it out around the world. We think it's a fun, entertaining, not mean-spirited show. I don't tend to do mean-spirited shows. The closest I've gotten to mean-spirited is Anne Robinson making fun of people, <laughs> but that's also done, as she famously did, with a wink. The basic premise of it is that we've got two families, we go to their houses, we raid their fridges, and we reproduce in the studio what's in their fridge for two chefs, that's right. And then the two chefs each make a meal based on what's in the fridge and serves it back to the family. They don't know which chef has made which 
meal, and then they score they score the results. There's two great moments, I think, in the show. When the kid is eating something and they either like it or hate it because that's funny, but then when the person, when the parent, if it's a family, says, I didn't know I could make that with the leftovers in my refrigerator. Yeah. That, to me, is the win. That first time it happened in the first episode, I, said, I turned to everybody in the gallery and I said, that's the show right there. The lady said, I didn't know I could make that with whatever the leftovers. You know, we replicate the refrigerators. We do one family at a time. And so we steal the food from Justin's refrigerator and we make two versions of it. And the chefs don't know anything about the families except what they see on the refrigerator. The pictures and the school things and the this and that that you keep under your magnets on your fridge. And they had to make whatever they could make in an hour. Try to replicate the frantic pace of what happens to real people. It's from Justin's fridge. It'll be all pheasants and caviar, Phil. So it'd be, <laughs> so, it'd be easy to make something nice. All the game is hung up in the garage too, for the blood for the blood to drain, David. Right yes. wine, right wine pairings. And... <laughs> <laughs> No, the, the really the really part of the fun of it is that, of course, you know what they have to replicate is that rather dodgy Tupperware box at the back of the fridge where no one can quite remember what it was <laughs> three days ago. <laughs> I mean, my theory on dark shows and light shows is that dark shows always sound kind of sexier when you pitch them, but most of the shows that have got genuine longevity in our business are positive shows. I mean, if you could laugh. If you can learn something, if you can smile and enjoy, I don't think everything has to be light and fluff, but I mean, I think you're right. Now, on this podcast, it has been known that we have looked at formats and wondered if there's any ways in which they're broken. But does it actually matter if a format is broken? If the central concept of a show is entertaining enough? Are we guilty of overanalyzing the fun out of a show? And if people like it, so what's the problem? So the reason, what, Justin, why I was thinking about this is there's a show um, that started in the UK, but it's actually gone on to be more successful in the US called Penn and Teller Fool Us. I remember, yeah. And it's one that I come across uh, weirdly because of, of the internet because it's actually quite a clippable sort of show, because it, each well, segment is about you know, five or seven minutes, and therefore it's, it's the sort of thing that does suit the YouTube algorithm rather well. And do you want to explain what, how it works? Yeah, so what happens is uh, a magician comes on claiming that they've got a brilliant trick that's going to fool Penn and Teller, these, these very experienced magicians who've seen it all before, but they genuinely want to see tricks that will fool them and the magician performs their trick and at the end Penn and Teller will well rather Penn and not Teller <laughs> will uh, say in vague terms how they thought they, the trick might have been done and then if uh, they have fooled them then they get an award that's all it's, it's done for just for prestige really but they also I think get an invite to perform on the Penn and Teller stage in Las Vegas oh yeah which is a which is a big prize so yeah yeah, yeah. So when you say the word broken, because this is a, <laughs> it's a little bit of a technical term, really. So again, what do you mean by broken? I have a number of problems with this as, as, a, as a general format. I mean, first of all, there are magicians who go on and they will do, uh, let's say, an ambitious card routine, that one where the, the chosen card keeps returning to the top of the deck. Oh. And something like that might have 30 or 40 different slights that might be involved and you can't sort of go like, did you follow everything that was happening there? Right. Yeah. 
Uh, were you genuinely fooled about that would move 17 out of 30? I would have liked it if they said, let's say, at the end of the routine, the chosen card leapt up in the air and turned into a frog. Okay, so that's the central conceit. You know, the rest of it was just for fun and just to show off. But the one thing that we want you to work out, Penn and Teller, is how did he turn the card into a frog? I see. And I just think that would, that would be much more focused and sensible way of, of, of posing a puzzle to Penn and Teller and also to the audience. Well, the other thing is the way that they explain whether Penn and Teller followed what was going on. They've sort of developed this style of kind of dropping hints. So, so Penn will sort of just have this sort of spiel... But if you know a little bit about magic, you might sort of pick up uh, him saying things like, well, you know, that that uh, performance had some rough bits and it had some smooth bits. And you know, if you know what a rough and smooth deck as a magician is, you'd sort of pick up on the fact that, OK, that's what they think <laughs> was the way that the, the trick was done. Yeah. So they have this sort of like code word thing. And the person who's on stage is supposed to pick up on these vague hints and sort of interpret them and try and work out whether they think they've fooled Penn and Teller or not. And there have been situations where the magician has sort of gone, oh, yeah, yeah, you've got me. And then they've sort of gone back and chatted and then they've realised that actually they hadn't fooled them. Okay. Because they just were like, you know, the pressure was on them and the camera was on them and they just sort of went, oh, yeah, yeah, you've got me. And actually... Have they shown that um, that reverse? No, because that's oh, all done off camera, behind the stage, oh, like right. many, many, maybe hours later. I don't know. Oh right, I was seeing right. Um, which I think is a, a bit of a problem because it is the central. It's meant to be the central piece of entertainment well, of the show. Whether, whether, um, like magic as a puzzle is a is a bit of a problematic thing anyway. But then there's another thing, which is I have seen an act which was the British. Chiro Young and Strange when they were on the British version of the show <laughs> and in the middle of the act they they did this sort of one really fishy looking move and he sort of went oh okay that's obviously where they did the swap or whatever it was I can't remember oh. what it was so Penn and Teller were going like okay well you know that was nice routine guys but obviously we saw the swap you did halfway and they went oh, oh we knew we didn't do a swap halfway and they sort of went oh so why did you do that really you know, they're sort of really confused. Like, why why would you put in a really fishy move if you didn't need <laughs> to do that really fishy move? And, and it was it was a bit unclear as to whether they'd put in that fishy move deliberately to sort of just put them off the scent, or oh. whether they genuinely hadn't sort of thought, oh, that might might look suspicious. Maybe we should do it a better way. Oh. Now that was taken to an extreme by Jay Sankey, an American magician who went on the show, did a trick, did it in a certain way that looked quite suspicious. Penn and Teller went, oh, we think you did it this way. Jay Sankey holds up his hands, goes, oh, you got me, guys, and sort of walks off empty-handed. And then on YouTube later, he goes, that's how they think I did the trick. However, I actually secretly fooled them because I really did it a completely different way, (laughs) but I made it look like I'd actually done it the way that they had set on the show. So now it's all getting very meta. <laughs> very meta. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's fascinating that to hear you say all of that because I know you know stuff about magic, which I I don't. So you know, I'm completely unaware of all of this code and and so on. Um, I mean, for me, it's broken because it all depends on whether they fool Penn and Teller, but we don't know 
how they fooled Penn and Teller. Each section is ultimately very frustrating uh. to watch, where you know you're essentially left out of this arcane conversation, and yet, to your earlier point, the show has been successful, and people who just generally watching the show seem to be happy, uh, seem to accept that. Whereas I find it deeply frustrating. Despite my reservations of the show, yeah, yes, it is successful, and there has been some marvelous, marvelous acts on it. I mean. Yeah. They have this Spanish magician on the show called Handro, so that's with a J, J-A-N-D-R-O, who is just like this sort of ultra-friendly kind of mad guy who just sort of comes on and just cre- creates chaos, and he's just a, a, a madman, really. You just sort of go, like, what on earth is this guy doing? And he comes up with these ridiculous in- uh, tricks that look like nothing you've ever seen before. Oh, and oh. I think four times in a row he's fooled Penn and Teller. Um, and the, they're all right. on YouTube. They'll definitely go and um, have a look at them. It, it's a show I have a lot of problems with, but yes, it, it's uh, I, I do actually rather like it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's funny because you and I come to all of these things, you know, with it, looking at the rules and the structure and so on. I mean, I sort of have a bit of a problem with The Traitors, even though I love it, I really enjoy it, I think it's a great format. I just have a problem with the game because the game is for the the faithful to figure out who the traitors are and nobody does anything on the show to offer clues as to the traitors identity and because we know who the traitors are what we watch is these people thrashing around trying to coming up with the ever more ridiculous theories as to who they think the traitor is but certainly the british version i didn't see any anybody do anything that would give us give them a clue as to who the traitors were what other shows do you think are successful but broken? Oh, successful but broken. <laughs> well, I suppose. Well, it, you, you're you're saying is it broken and does it matter? So I think we kind of like. There's always this slight kerfuffle about every so often about whether Jeopardy is broken, in terms of like the the players that are good at it are the ones that are probably the, the the reigning champions who they will use their advantage of of, of the experience of the studio to go for all the big money values and immediately mm. go for like the sort of the fourth layer down of questions because that's usually where they hide the daily doubles and then that's it it's game over because like all the values that are left on the board the other the sort of two th- two-thirds of the board are so low value that you know, even if you just scrap a third of them you're, you're going to be uh well in the lead so wow. um so mathematically because because you have free choice of any question or any level, the, the people do sort of wonder um, whether that's broken. But it, it tends to be something that sort of keeps going in and out of fashion. Well, I suppose it, there is that factor of, of the show may not start off as broken, but as contestants learn how to play it, you know, at, over a period of time, there might be these flaws that come out. I always felt that with The Weakest Link, that there the came a time where basically in almost every episode, people seem to vote off the strongest link because they thought they were getting rid of the you know the opposition and the result was you had people walking down the walk of shame going i don't understand you know, uh-huh. why am i being voted off i just got three questions right and the other consequence of that was that the result of that was that the people that were left were actually weaker players so the the prize pot at the end was statistically lower Oh. Um, so people won less money, so the endings got less satisfying. 
and so it went on. So I don't know whether they ever brought in a, a an off-camera rule to fix that. No, I mean, we've talked to Lynn Sutcliffe about that, oh. and, and, and she said that they were aware of it, and they didn't care, because they they, they kind of kind <laughs> of liked annoying the viewers and getting them angry and about the injustice injustice of it all and yeah well you see and that and you know this is, as i said because you and i are kind of games people and rules people or whatever this is a whole sort of if you like extra side extra slant on the process of tv making that you know one's got to take into account it's a bit like wipeout i mean over a period of time again you know wipeout got harder and harder and, and some of the rounds of virtually impossible if not entirely impossible but that show has always been produced and edited ruthlessly for slapstick comedy well that's what it's about and if too many people do it well and they don't fall in the water and they don't slip up and they don't do this that the other it's not delivering those comedy moments and all they want is the comedy moments uh, you know, they tell people to act weird, even if they're not weird, and say, oh, could you do that again, but shout bananas while you do it. <laughs> um, you know, I seriously. And I sit there watching Wipeout going, sorry, who are you? Sorry, but how did you, why are you in the next round? And what happened to that guy that did the round? He's gone now? And oh. I, I literally, I said, I don't understand what I'm watching. But because it's, you know, aimed at a young audience who just love watching people hit their heads and fall in the water, they don't care. As long as someone's getting punched in the face, people are happy. I think that's what we can <laughs> we can conclude about television. Great. Good. All right. Well, that's sorted then. <laughs> right. Okay. Okay. On to the next thing. And now we return to our interview with Phil Gurin, and we continue with his role as the chairman of Frapper, the organisation that helps protect format rights. Okay, so let's move on to one of your many hats, the Frapper hat. So your co-chair of Frapper, David and I have talked about Frapper several times on this show, but it would be great if you could just explain briefly what it what it is. Frapper, the Format Recognition and Protection Association, we are a non-profit association headquartered in the Netherlands. We have members all around the world. When it was formed over 20 years ago, the phenomena of protecting intellectual property doesn't only apply to television, it applies to computer software, to handbags, to soap. There are a lot of countries that don't even recognize the idea of intellectual property. And so one of Frappa's key missions is to educate that there's value in, in, in the intellectual property of a format. We try to educate what a format is. Justin, you know what a format is as well, if not better, than most people on the planet Earth. And, you know, I always call a format the cookbook, going back to Fridge Wars. It's the cookbook that allows you to take Wheel of Fortune or Fridge Wars or another one of my babies, the Singing Bee, and we sell it around the world. And another country, not having made it the first time, could follow that recipe and execute their own version of that show. Everything from set design to rules to structure to how it's made, how it's not supposed to be made. And that cookbook, that Bible, again, things you know very, very well, that format Bible is so valuable. And what happens is people don't value that. We want to educate people to value that. We want to educate the whole underpinning of the global distribution business of unscripted formats is those Bibles. If you don't respect that, the underpinning of the business falls. A distributor is only as good as the content they have in their catalog. Hmm. And if everybody's ripping off their catalog, 
distribution companies will disappear. And I'm even talking about the gigs, the global entertainment giants. I call them the gigs. I'm trying to make that a thing. <laughs> global entertainment giants. We, we will use it from now on, on on TV show and tell. Please do. I write about it all the time in frappa articles. Even at scale, you start ripping off everybody else. Then nothing has value. And then if nothing has value, how do you build a company, right? So you want to protect the creative idea from the writer. You want to protect the creative output of the production company. And you want to protect those finished products from for distributors. It's, yeah. a, it's a financial ecosystem that benefits everybody. It lifts all pumps and everybody's listening to one another and honoring one another. So that's the mission to me. We do all kinds of things within Frappa. We have, you know, guides on how to do a Bible. We have our Declaration of Cooperation, which is translated into, I think, 15 or 18 languages. It's a document that we want the world to understand is this is how you should be fair and do business in this world. We do format analysis when there are people feeling aggrieved, pay for the service, but we have a professional proprietary score that we do when people ask us to compare two shows to see if they're a ripoff. Now, we're not a legal body. We have no teeth. We have the power of persuasion. We have the power of education. But people do take our format analysis into court, and they can say FRAPA, this nonprofit, very neutral organization, they could take a frat form analysis. Oh, well, see, Frappa gave us this high score. It is a ripoff. Or Frappa found out there's some similarities, but it's not big enough to be a ripoff, right? Yeah. Because there are certain conventions and in, in formats that, that know no bounds, I guess. We mostly benefit the small and medium companies, the younger, newer companies, the younger creatives, the smaller creatives. But we want to get them involved with the big companies. We have some very big companies who are corporate sponsors as well. We want more. It's like a good housekeeping seal. If you say you're a Frappa member, you're going to be respectful to others in the business and to the business itself. Are you allowed to say who the who the major villains of the piece are around the world? I mean, where where do we where do we find the the biggest rippers offers? Or what are what are the basic threats to the business? Well, there's two different questions there. Which any <laughs> women answer? <laughs> oh, you answer mine. <laughs> I won't answer yours. No, I thought you wouldn't. <laughs> That's okay. The, big, the biggest threat is where people rip you off, right? And where rip offs come from could happen anywhere. Everybody, there's never, there's no territory where I haven't talked to somebody where it said somebody ripped them off. It happens all over the world, right? Yeah. Sometimes it's not conscious. I'm willing to give some people the benefit of the doubt. And I'll tell you why. When there's an idea in the air, there's an idea in the air. Yeah. And every producer is probably chasing that same idea in one iteration or the other. When a show is launched, and you can prove that it's there on the air, and somebody can say, well, they just ripped me off, perhaps that's a different case. And I always also say, having been a veteran of these wars for a long time, there's always room in the marketplace for the first one and the first knockoff, right? And the second one which should be a little different. After that, it's not going to work anyway. When you're asked, how do you protect a format that be the first to market? That's right. And the one thing I also would say about all of this, though, is... You know, we all just have to try to be honorable when it comes to this stuff, right? We are, I want to emphasize, a neutral body. If there's ever a conflict of interest on our board, people recuse themselves from a conversation. Our neutrality is our strength, right? And that's a very important thing to emphasize about Frapper. You have a new venture, TGC Global Entertainment. You have decided to be a distributor and to represent formatted content I think right across the sort of unscripted world. So why this and why now? 
Well, I'm out of my mind. (laughs) (laughs) That's part one. Part two, we've all lived through the roller coaster of rights retention from from in the U.S., changing of the FinCEN laws many years ago where people, the big companies could own their stuff where they couldn't in the past. And then the evolution of cable networks realizing they're leaving money on the table by letting producers own their stuff to the big companies wanting it to the streamer saying, I'll take it for the world. Hmm. So small and medium-sized and independent companies were losing control of their content. What's happening now with contraction of the business, with money being tight, even the biggest companies are looking for co-production. They're looking for risk mitigation. They're looking for ways to not be on the hook for the whole freight. Producers are able, almost like the movie business, to maybe pre-sell other territories. So I think I have found a moment in time where I think rights are going to be available or indies. Look, we still have to compete with the gigs, right? I'm not going to have the same catalog that Banerjee does or ITV does or Warner Brothers has, but I don't need to. I do think indies helping indies, there's a market for it. The pitch, part of the pitch is this, and other companies make this pitch. Unless you're owned by one of the gigs, your format is not going to be top of mind when they go pitching, right? They have owned or partially owned companies within their silo. Those are the formats that are going to be top of mind when those sales executives make their sales calls to this, that, and the other. Uh So as an indie, not owned by one of those places, you want somebody who's not invested in anything other than financial success of selling your show. Yeah. You know, I also, one of my favorite independent distributors was Magnify Media. My friend Andrea Jackson and Magnify Media, that's kind of evolved into ITV now. And I thought, this is a good time as any to try to do this. I've spent way too many decades meeting people around the world. I come at it as a writer, producer. I understand not just as a salesman, but the creative process and the relationships I've been able to build up over the, over the years in the business on every continent. It just seemed now is a really good time to do it. And we're only in our distribution company going to deal in things that have been produced. We're not going to take paper format. Okay. I think if it's a paper format, my production company, as a producer, I'll sell it. That's what a producer should do, sell paper. As a distributor, I want to be able to only represent things that have been produced, either as one-offs, as series, or major pilots by a legitimate A-level production, you know, broadcaster or platform. And that's what we've launched. We launched with 18 titles. We're going to add more in just a few weeks. And bless with the reaction we got from studios and platforms and producers all over the world, channels, who are looking for a different kind of boutique curated creatively focused distributor. So I hope I get to fill that niche. I mean, maybe you can't talk about current ones, but are there any in the recent past where you've sort of gone, oh, I'd really like the rights to this, but that's the one that sort of kind of got away from you? Well, no, I'll tell you why, because I recognize that most of the biggest formats are already owned by those big companies, right? If you think about the main diet of unscripted television is on any major country's platforms, the majority are from the big companies, right? The smaller ones are fewer and far between. And now with the changing economics of our business, those small ones might be available. Now, I'm not looking at formats for my distribution company for me to produce. That's not the model. It's to purely be a full-on distributor or sales agent. That's it, to help others, to help others reach the people that I know and my team knows and to sell their shows and sell, quite honestly, against the big companies. I think there's a moment in time. I think this time will last a while. I think you'll ultimately see more players do what I'm trying to do now again, and we'll see how it goes. Are you, are you sort of looking at some more niche 
the slightly quirkier formats? No, no. I will tell you very honestly. Fridge Wars is now in my catalog. The Singing Bee is now in my catalog. Oh, sit. I'm working with Warner Brothers, a big shiny floor, big physical comedy game show. We're going to sell it together. Next week, Canada's Ultimate Challenge launches. The logline is we turn your country into a giant obstacle course. This is a big, prime-tied, mainstream physical competition show with lots of twists. So most of the stuff is broad and big. We have some quirkier, smaller titles. You know, I like to think in our catalog, we have different price points. We have the big shows, we have medium shows, and we have cheapest chip shows. But that doesn't mean they're bad. They're just inexpensive. So I'm not going to have the voice and Big Brother in my catalog, but maybe my shows will grow and we're going we're constantly getting more in. Great. Well, Phil, we're going to talk to you a little bit later when we do show and tell item. But for now, thank you very, very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you, guys. So it's been reported in the news that there has been a few incidents with regards to the real version of the Squid Game. Well, not not that not that real in that people are not getting shot, <laughs> but there is a game show being made by Studio Lambert in the UK, which uh, features 456 contestants. And there has been a number of incidents reported by the newspapers with regards to contestant welfare. And so I thought we should have a little bit of chat about how you look after people in when, when they're in your realm of a, of a TV studio or TV recording. Uh, so in, just to sort of quickly catalogue some of the things that have been reported. So lo and behold, the fact that they've been recording this in the, um, the British winter has, has led to there being reports of people getting stretched off due to effectively hypothermia or um, lack of heat in one way or another, which is like, well, that's a complete surprise. I mean, um, but apparently... The game, the, the sort of first um, red light, green light game uh, was uh, where people were having to stand still, but they, they were having to stand still for like 10, 15, 20 minutes at a time. Yeah. And, that, and so there was like extended periods of just standing around in really cold weather. Oh. Um, well, I've, I've been in South Korea in the winter where if the original show comes from South Korea and it can be extremely cold there as well. So um, it's, not, uh, it's not unique to British winter. But um, but yeah, I mean, as you say, the process of filming can often involve people hanging around or standing around, you know, for, for long periods of time. Um, so there's been a, an, an element of, of deliberate stress being put on the contestant. Oh. So then also there's been accusations of like when hundreds of these people have been eliminated at an early stage, uh, they've got back to their hotel and they've been told not to talk to anybody else, just to go back to your room. You can't sort of go out and get whatever food you like. And they've been sort of kept in their hotel room and these fairly um, disappointing looking burgers have been just dropped outside their rooms. Yeah. Uh, so the sort of like the forward planning of the, the whole sort of catering aspect has been uh, criticised. But perhaps the trickiest point about this whole thing is that a lot of contestants, you know, if, if you've got people that have been hyped up and then they've been found that they have lost oh. and all these disappointed people are bussed back to a hotel, they're obviously going to feel at best disappointed and, and at worst feel like they've been treated unfairly oh, yeah. and that is one where if you're very unlucky or very careless you, you can the whole group atmosphere of a, a whole 
bunch of of people who have a grudge against you for treating being treated unfairly that can be a situation that can turn nasty as i as i i mean i haven't had any really bad situations but i mean i for example on a, a recent recording we had a buzzer system that was set up in a way that i would not have liked in that it it kind of reset on a timer rather than on a manual control to sort of yeah. put it succinctly and um, people could buzz in before the the host had finished reading the question and so if i had judged that people had buzzed in too early i was supposed to catch that and tell people no you buzzed in too early but it was very difficult to do under stress i would much would have preferred a to have a key to release the buzzers and and let let that be the moment where people could well, buzz in. But well, for whatever reason, it wasn't done that way. And one contestant, quite rightly, sort of put their hand up halfway, saying, hang on, you're, you're letting this woman to my left get away with murder because she's buzzing in before the question's been asked. And, and luckily, you know, obviously we have things recorded, so we roll back the tape and check whether they're right or not. Yeah. But we had it in the rules to say, we will go back one question and replay that question and, and correct it if that's the case. But we will not replay the whole round. Oh, and, and and luckily that we were able to sort of use the, the oh. rule, oh. the rule of law to to enforce that. But it could, you know, it, if we didn't have that 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 rule in our rules, we would have had to do a whole do over. Yeah, it's always difficult because when you're putting contestants under physical as well as mental pressure, that may be the premise of the show, and that may be what you want to see. And to a certain extent you do need to carry that on outside of filming because if you take if you put people on set just after they've been in a warm Winnebago with a lovely, lovely meal and so on, then um, you're not going to get the kind of reactions that you want. I remember working on Total Blackout, uh, the show where people were playing games in the, in the complete darkness uh, on the Indonesian version, and it was a problem because... I discovered that the production team, um, because of the country it was in and the nature of the way that they welcome people, um, when people arrived on set, you know, they were greeted with tremendous charm and courtesy and flowers and a lovely buffet and all the rest of it, and then shoved into a room where they were supposed to be terrified. Right. (laughs) They were wondering why people weren't behaving the way they should behave according to the tapes that they'd seen. So... There is an extent to which you've got to, if you if you want people to be in that mental state, we had this sort of shock treatment where which was a, a reality series about scaring people. And one of the first decisions we made was that the contestants would never meet because the first thing they would expect to do in a reality series about fear would be between takes or even on camera to get together and start talking about you know, oh God, wasn't it scary? Did you jump when this happened? Whatever. What was far scarier was to be alone at all times. And in fact, the only contestants they ever met during the filming were fake. Um, and we would sit somebody next to them briefly who'd say, oh God, how, how, how long have you been here? And our real contestant would go, oh, well, I arrived yesterday. I think I'm here for 48 hours. And the other guy would go, Shit, I, I've been here a week. <laughs> and then just wander off. <laughs> we did a lot of things like that. But it was all about delivering the performance for the actual part of the show. So on the one hand, you know, you do have to carry through the stress and the pressure. 
and not take your foot off the pe- off the pedal. Um, on the other hand, there is the, the opposite danger where if you put people under too much pressure, they'd shut down. So, you know, particularly again with that whole thing with television and filming about, yes, you talk about with Squid Game, about hanging about in the cold on your own, not speaking, is that people's people are not used to it um, and their sometimes their response is just to shut down and then what you end up is not not angry contestants but just unresponsive contestants and oh. they don't give you all that emotion on screen and so on but whichever way you cut it or whatever the contestant signs um, you know whatever procedures you've gone through it is ultimately up to the production you know the buck stops with you you know, you can blame the contestant till the cows come home. Oh. But if the contestant is unhappy or thinks it's unfair or has got injured or whatever it might be, it's ultimately your fault because this is just a game. This is just entertainment. And I try to impress that on, on everybody who works on the shows is, you know, this is all of our responsibility. You cannot rely on contestants to run left when running right is more dangerous, you know. <laughs> You can't rely on them not to pick up something they're not supposed to pick up. You, it's it's your responsibility. It's our responsibility. Mm. When people are devising these sorts of shows, especially if they're members of the public who have like excitedly got an idea and they want to put it in front of producers, I often find that they haven't thought of the basics of like, okay, so you've got this thing about people um, trapped in the Tower of London for a month. Okay, fine. But like, you know, how how are they going to sleep? How are they going to have heat? How are they going to get food? How are they going to be medically supervised? Do they have any contact with the outside world or not? Can they have messages if there's an emergency happened? What do, there's, there's a whole like yeah. sort of set of levels of Maslow's needs that need to yes. be discussed and approved and agreed at all levels. That's getting increasingly important in this day and age, as, from a, from the sort of psychological point of view as well as just oh, sort of the, oh. the basic oh, yeah. needs. I'm working on a show at the moment where we're talking about helicopters and helicoptering people into a into a difficult situation, and this um, it's quite interesting that in Europe, if you're making a show like that, you have to rope people off the helicopter. You can't land and have them jump off the helicopter and go. Right. Whereas in um, South America, where we're all, where we may also be deciding to film it, um, you can. Um, and obviously, touch and go is what you like to do. And if you're using big military helicopters, you know the rotor blades are way, way above your heads. But nevertheless, that's the rule. And and there are you know there are all these sorts of things that you've got to take into account to you know to keep to keep your contestants safe when you want to do something that looks spectacular on screen and it's it's such a balance you know they're not they're not stunt men and stunt women um you know they're just members of the public and even when they're sports people i mean the jump um if you remember this jump <laughs> you know was cancelled after i think it was beth tweddle who who actually sued channel four for the extent of her injuries when the case finally came to court you know all these multiple celebrity contestants testified you know, it was um, Tina Hobley from uh, Holby City and the guy from Maiden Chelsea and Linford Christie and Bradley Wiggins and the girl from, girl from Sarah Harding from Girls Aloud. 
you know, all say, yeah, this happened to me and that happened to me, da 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 da, you know, and it's like, well, you know, look at the show, look what you're supposed to do, you know, what did you think was going to happen? Yeah. You know, you're, you're skiing off the end of a massive ramp. Um, but on the other hand, like I said, fundamentally, the buck stops with the production. So we're back with Phil Gurin. And Phil, we ask everybody on the show to bring along an item to show and tell us. So what have you got to show us? Well, I have an item that is meaningful to me because it took me 20 years to find it. But I wanted it for the very first time I discovered it. And what made me think to tell you guys about this is we just learned of the death and passing of the great composer Burt Bacharach. And Burt Bacharach not only wrote so many pop songs that everybody in the U.S. and the U.K. would know, but he did soundtracks for movies. And one of his first films was the soundtrack to a James Bond spoof, the original movie version of Casino Royale with David Niven and Peter Sellers and Ursula Andress and Woody Allen and Orson Welles. And I remember I was a very small boy when my dad took me to see it, and I loved it. It was ridiculous, and it was over the top, and it was funny, and it was super colorful, and it had this great music. And the main theme was by Herb Albert, the Tijuana Brass. There was an Oscar-winning song, The Look of Love, sung by Dusty Springfield. Because of that movie, perhaps maybe because of that music, I wanted to go into show business. I don't know why, and I thought that's what I was going to do. Cut to, I love the music, but I could never find the album. It's a classic. If you are a collector of soundtracks, it is famous for being one of the most well-produced soundtracks of the 60s. Anyway, it takes me years and years to find it. And at some point, I'm finally doing international television, and I'm in Paris making a show. Don't remember what it was. And I go to the Virgin Record Shop that used to be on the Champs-Élysées, and I had this epiphany. This piece of music is what I've been looking for for years, and I found it. And I wouldn't have found it if I wasn't making international television and I wasn't in Paris that time. <laughs> All because of Casino Royale and the soundtrack by Burt Bacharach. Yes, so happens that my brother actually owns an LP shop. So, you know, I, if you just asked me, Phil, I could just give him, give him a ring. And he, he could have had it in the, in the post to you by Thursday. So anyway, at least you've got it now. Good to know for the future. <laughs> That's great. Thanks very much indeed for being on TV Show and Tell. Thank you, guys. It really is a lot of fun. Right, well, it's been a packed programme, but we just have time to fit in a fake format. And Justin, I have two formats for you today about light. Light. The concept of light. So the first one is called Tushitje Svet, uh, which means turn out the lights. And this is a, a Russian show from the early 2000s. I could tell from your uh, impeccable accent, though. Yeah, well, you know, I have to, have to, have to, do, have to do my research. And uh, this is a, a po- political and satirical talk show. So what happens is a uh, presenter is sat in a seat and they are talking about the politics and the problems of the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the thing that makes it unusual is that the two people to his left and right are actually uh, cartoon animals. There's a pig called Krun and a hare called Stefan. And they're both very sweary and they just sort of talk about uh, council housing of uh, giving me a rubbish flat or, or things like that. So that's Turn Out the Lights, it's called. The second one is the Kniffliger Regenbogen, 
which is The Tricky Rainbow. This, this is a physical game show from the mid-90s on ZDF in Germany. And it all revolves around using uh, colour with regards to uh, various physical games. So you might have to dress cutouts of cartoon characters in the correct costume, or you might have to taste fruit juice in a room that's been lit in weird colours, so you, you can't tell what the fruit juices are. Or you might have to sort out coloured balls while wearing 3D glasses. So that is the tricky rainbow, or you had the first one, which is turn out the lights. Which one is fake and which one is a genuine format? Well, I think my biggest concern is that you dreamt both of these. Um, mm. And I, I'm very worried about what you were drinking or smoking when you had that dream. Um, because they both sound like dreams um, of uh, multicolored, multi weird. Um, uh, riffs on on regular shows if you like hmm that's a i find it if 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 you, if you have one genuine show i find it not too difficult to come up with a fake one that's based on a similar theme so that is true it's finding the fake one first that's the hard bit that is quite true sometimes and this is probably a terrible method but sometimes my part of my method for judging these things is is whether something feels like a like a complete narrative or whether it feels like something that's made up of rounds and parts. Um, oh, I see. I um, thought you were going to sort of say whether it sounded like a David type thing, like we were sort of playing <laughs> the man, not the ball. Yeah. Um. No, no, absolutely not. Because the, the stuff that you come up with is so out there that I'm not able to do that. Um, but I, I say that because I find that in myself when I'm playing this game, um, I sometimes put too much emphasis on the, the, the 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 working parts, if you like, rather than the overall concept. Russia Russian television is strange, and they go to places that we don't go. Um, I assume this show, if it exists, must be a little bit old because I think political comment is not quite as um, <clears throat> rigorous and open as it as it has been in the past. But um, something about that just feels Russian. So I'm going to go for the talk show. And you would be absolutely correct. Yay. Uh, yes. So you, you, you write about what you said about the, <laughs> the, the political aspect of the whole concept of having a satirical show. Even for its time, it was seen as uh, quite sort of out there and, mm. and quite controversial that mm. the people could sort of um, mouth off about how bad the state was at, at, at this, that, and the other. And um, yes, it's it's hard to see a show like that uh, existing happily on on Russian television. So, uh, mm. but uh, yeah, twenty years ago, different different kettle of fish and and um, uh, sweary three D computer animated uh, animals were 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 fine. <laughs> so, I guess I guess they couldn't shoot them. You know, they weren't real. So. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it for this enlightening episode if you want to contact us you can email contact at tvshowandtell.com or tweet us using the handle at tvshowpodcast until next time I've been David Bodicum and I've been Justin Scroggie and this has been TV Show and Tell <laughs> <laughs>